You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for joining me. We really appreciate you being here. Uh, and I'm really excited about today's show. We've got a great concept for you. I think a lot of the reason, you know, when I talked to our patrons back in January, the thing that I heard most often was that we help you stay sane by trying to access some knowledge. And our guest today is Dr. Travis Corcoran, who just wrote Restoring Reason, uh, using the ancient liberal arts to defend against modern manipulation. And you can find the first chapter at restoringreason.com. Uh, you know, I found this book at Half Price Books years ago called The Trivium by Sister Miriam Joseph, and it's The Liberal Arts of Logic, Grammar, and Rhetoric. And one, and it helped influence my thinking because it, there's just too much information, Dr. Corcoran. <laughs> there's, it's an overwhelming amount of information at this point in our lives, and I think it makes people feel a little bit crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. In fact, that's what... Um we, we also, we say this all the time. We live in the age of information and which is great. I mean, I love information, but, uh, I'm sure you're, you're very familiar with this after reading sister Mary and Joseph's book information is good. However, it can be correct or incorrected. So we, we say this with pride, like, ah, the age of information, but you just said it so perfectly. We're drowning in it. So I, I look forward to the age of reason or age of understanding, which is the second liberal art, so that we can like progress and move on and actually make sense of the information and see, you know, use the tools to see which is correct, which is incorrect. Well, let's start with your background. Tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and who you are and how you got to writing this book. <laughs> okay. Uh, I had a pretty, I would say... My, my parents weren't too happy with it, but I did spend a lot of time in school and had a pretty diverse uh, education. Um, so I studied nuclear engineering when I was in the U.S. military in the Navy. Af then after that, I went to university, got my degree in philosophy. I started out uh, in biology with a minor in philosophy. But after a few philosophy courses, I quickly switched that around. So I majored in philosophy and minored in biology. After that, uh, I worked for a little bit as uh, with the engineering uh, that I got from the military, but that I hurt my hurt my back at work, and uh, went and saw a chiropractor. That changed the course of my life. Um, uh, I was always very much into reason, uh, critical thought, and and I know there's a lot of just like there's many different kinds of medical doctors, different kinds of politicians as well, but there are many different kinds of chiropractors. I was lucky I went to this one. She was very grounded in principles, which are fundamental truths, useful in system or chain of reasoning. And she was very grounded in principles. Everything conformed to reason. And that's when I made a big career change. So then I went back to school again uh, as a chiropractor and got my doctorate in chiropractic. And then since then, I've really... Um, I've really just been pursuing 
the trivium or these first three liberal arts so that we can restore reason to not just healthcare, which was a big thing for me, but restore restore reason to politics, to to business, uh, to the family structure, and most importantly, just restore reason to discussion. So that we yeah, so you, you've hit on some big concepts there. The way that I, I think Matt Taibbi nailed it a few weeks ago, that we kind of live in an age where We've just got these two ecospheres when it comes to politics that are just kind of keeping people off balance. We're sort of yeah. living in a postmodern nightmare that, you know, all those uh, Christian pastors I listened to in the 2000s are like, well, if you abandon truth, then nothing will be true and everyone will go crazy. And that's sort of, I think, how people feel, um, where there's just sort of this, uh, we live in the present so much, uh, and, and it kind of breaks down some of these systems. So... Talk about the liberal arts, because I think when most people hear that, they just think about, oh, that's the I had to do a bunch of boring stuff in college. (laughs) Um, But the liberal arts are incredibly important to the Western mind in the world uh, and to an individual's way of thinking. So define liberal arts, please. Uh, The etymological definition really comes from the Latin liber and alus. Uh, Liber, as you know, that means liberty. That's the Latin root for liberty or freedom. And A-L from the alus, that means of or pertaining to. So these are the arts of or pertain or pertaining to freedom, really. These are the arts of freedom, freedom for our mind. And you yourself being familiar with Sister Miriam Joseph's book, you know that the, the trivium is really the first three of the seven classical liberal arts. And they're, they're distinct from the quadrivium or the, the last four because <clears throat> They're focused, these first three liberal arts are focused on the quality, the quality of your mind. And uh, maybe I should make this too. There's a distinction between utilitarian arts or servile arts and the liberal arts. And Sister Miriam Joseph talks about this in her book as well. I don't get into that much detail in mine. I tried to make my book a little more reader friendly. User friendly, yeah. Yeah, because I'm like, probably like you, if you ever recommend that book to people, they don't find it very sexy. I, I really haven't, no. <laughs> she was born in 1898. She was, yeah. uh, you know, doctor <laughs> from Columbia. She was a very uh, heady person, and, and you get a lot yeah. of... Yeah, but, I mean, d- what are those seven classical liberal arts, like, and, and, you know, why did you choose the first three? The first three, because, like I said, they deal with the quality of mind, and the first one is... Um, it, it, she refers to them as grammar. Uh, that's how we structure information. And then logic, how we structure uh, an, an argument. So first you structure a statement. Then structuring statements together, premises to form a conclusion. That would be logic, the second liberal art. And then rhetoric, um, which is concerned more with effectiveness, how effectively you communicate. So those are the first three liberal arts. And if you're familiar with John Taylor Gatto, he best des- best describes these um, like the elite elite, their education is pretty much just the trivium. What they do is they read, they write and they debate. Hmm. And if you, if now you can probably see why that's so important. Reading is probably one of the most effective uh, ways of acquiring information or grammar, right? I, I sometimes refer to the first three liberal arts a bit differently, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom instead of grammar, logic, rhetoric, or more modern terms, you could just say input, processing, output. But John Taylor Gatto, when he talks about it, he says, read, write, and debate. Because reading um, is a great way to access information, plus 
so much is left to your imagination. So it still um, instills innovation, creativity, forming your own thoughts while you acquire information. And then with the writing, you're forced to structure your argument. You have to um, really put it down, think about it. It has to, uh, yeah, conform to reason, right? There can't be contradictions, errors and reasons, logical inconsistencies. So writing is a way to force our mind or to practice uh, logic or understanding the second liberal art. And then uh, he says debate, read, write, and debate. And there is no better practice for rhetoric than debate, like how well you present your argument. Um, so that's really the first three liberal arts. And those are necessary for um, before you were to start with, like, say, the quadrivium, which has to do with uh, not quality of mind, but quantity that the environment or quantity of the environment that the mind finds itself in. Hmm. And I, I know another book you would like, Chris, actually, hmm. and it's it's real small. It's by Dorothy Sayers. Yeah. The Tools of Learning. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're already familiar with it. <laughs> You've now, met a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice when nerds get together. Right? Yeah, right. Um, there's no surprises on the table. Yeah. She, um so that book was great. She uses different words than I do too. But what I love is um, how she really points out that these first three liberal arts is such a natural process. We go through these automatically. When when the child is born, your first seven years, you're not really a, a rhetorical expert. You're not asking a lot of questions. You're just absorbing information. It's just you are a uh, and mostly empirically. So most of the knowledge for the child is empirically derived in the first seven years. They, they just believe everything. They haven't developed good questioning skills or evaluation. But then you notice uh, in America, it's really easy because we have the Santa Claus tradition. But from the ages around seven or nine that you can see the child naturally enters that question. They begin to evaluate. They have a sufficient database of knowledge or grammar. They know how to identify things, construct statements. But now they're constructing questions and arguments. How does this man get from to every house in the world? How, you know, um, why is the sky blue? This is a frustrating phase for a lot of parents, I think, because the children are just now they want understanding. First, I, I'm just, kind of in that phase, yeah, with what a three year old like. Yeah, I yeah. know the answer, but I can't explain it to you because you can't comprehend it. But you know, it's I don't know. It it is difficult. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it'll get worse when they get to, like Dorothy Sayers says, when they get to the next seven years around 14, uh, which is called sophomore, like a wise fool in, in the, the U.S., then <laughs> their their database is sufficient, which is all should be growing the rest of their life if they're an avid reader like yourself. And um, then they also think they've made enough sense of the world now. And now they're, they automatically enter that rhetorical fit. They want to speak, right? So now they, they know everything and now they add a voice to it, which is also quite frustrating. That's why teenagers can be so frustrating for parents, I think. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I look back at all the things that I said when I was a teenager and how dumb I was, and I just can't believe it. I can't believe anybody let me talk until around 38. Um, <laughs> so Sounds familiar. Yeah, right? Uh, but the... I think I think I the way that I you know when I read your uh, your pitch and kind of the structure that you were putting together it kind of made me think of exercise like physical exercise we we just there's 
you know, different types of people. There's people who just take active, no active care of themselves. But the, most of us, I think, try to make some good choices about food, maybe go to the gym every once in a while. I'm telling on myself, you know, but th- then there's people like my friend Dakota that just make this hardcore effort to be disciplined and structured in their physical diet. I try mm-hmm. to do something similar uh, as often as I have time with my my uh, reading and my mental diet and writing and podcasting because I have an audience I've got to feed. Um, and I often tell people, like, don't let yourself get lazy with the mental stuff, and it'll make you less crazy because, like you said, if you're reading, writing, and then talking about this stuff, you have, you have uh, less anxiety about things, right? So... You know, even I've I've got a situation going on with an infection, and it was very scary early on. And then I went to the doctor, and they gave me knowledge, and then I was fine with it, right? Because I got some help. And so there's, you know, we see this play out all the time in our regular lives, but then we don't seem to apply it to our information diet. We just sort of mindlessly scroll and spend yeah. hours on TikTok or Facebook or Instagram, and then we can't figure out why while fundamentally the world is better than it's ever been, I should have died from this infection 150 years ago, uh, for instance. Um, We have a lot of advantages here in America. So how do you advise setting up a program for thinking? Oh, man. Uh, Before anyone... I like the way you put it, because I I often... Because you got to make the choice, right? Before you pick the diet plan and go to the gym, you got to have... You got to make the decision to make the choice to do that. It's great you like to realize that. And I'm sure many of your listeners probably pick up on that too, where they can draw those relationships from. Yeah, this is how it is physically. Well, if those principles are true physiologically, they must be psychologically too, just as it is with the body. It, it should be with the mind. And the way you said it too, about like just mindlessly scrolling, I really consider that. And I, I can be guilty too. It's not that I'm not um, perfect in any way, but when we scroll like that, it is really just like endless junk food for your for your mind. And like anyone that was concerned about their physical health would never do would never just nonstop consume junk food. McDonald's yeah, and ho hos and ding dongs yeah. and yeah. Look how um, it's even more dangerous with the mind because you don't know when you're full. Hmm. Right? But uh, the first step before even creating a a plan, which uh, would probably be unique to the the individual, but prior to starting, the first thing that has to happen is anyone that's considering this has to make the distinction between emotion and thought. Like thoughts are not the same as feelings and emotions are an automatic reaction to the environment that you find yourself in where thoughts are responses, right? This is an active process. It's not automatic. And before, or if anyone's going to have any success or hope to improve the quality of their mind, they really need to distinguish between those two things. And I'm not like condemning or ridiculing emotions that they're certainly very important. They serve a function. It's just not what so many people in our current culture think it is. Many people have strong, it's called the conviction bias. They have such strong feelings about something, usually a political ideology, and they've, they've never really thought about it. They don't understand the premises. They've been given a foregone conclusion by someone that may not have their best interests, you know, a malevolent uh, 
politician or whatever. And because they feel so strongly about it, they have convinced themselves that they have done actual thought when instead they've just really connected with an emotion. And it might be, it's usually a good one, you know, compassion as what a lot of people will use. Fear and anger are also easy, um, easy attack points or easy targets in the human mind. And it's unfortunate those things become very addictive as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, t- TikTok, like, for instance, is, is surpassing Facebook in crazy levels. I, I do uh, digital directing for a radio show. So my, my whole career for 20 years has been how to craft information to get your attention. I'm an attention yeah. merchant. And TikTok is specifically designed like candy for your brain. You pick yeah. one video and then all of a sudden you've been there for an hour and I find myself doing it. Like I'll be reading a book and then I'll pick up my phone because my brain nags at me. I pick it up and then I realize an hour later, like I've been on TikTok looking at like music videos from Aerosmith, you know, because it gives you anything and everything that you want yeah. on demand in interesting ways. Um, and I have to commit to putting that down or not actively using those channels. I mean, I've been a social media addict f- since 2005. Uh, and I've had to fight to kind of get away from that and get myself into reading over the last five years and get myself into kind of the stuff you're talking about um, because TikTok especially is just serotonin, yeah. serotonin, serotonin, serotonin. And then yeah. when you don't get it, your brain's going, oh, this is boring. <laughs> yeah. It's effectiveness probably lies too in that never so never in nature you know and we, we're born from nature I mean, everything about this we're not machines right um so the further we drift from nature the more problems we're inevitably going to have um it's great that we can have a lot of technology that does conform to natural processes but TikTok in particular is very strange because it moves so so quickly so fast you can change context like one minute, like you said, an Aerosmith video, the next minute, um, someone falling down a stairwell or the next minute, a mom, uh, kissing her little baby, uh, this, the context changes so rapidly and that never occurs in, in the natural environment. Yeah. That's you know, a great point. It, we really have difficulty slowing our mind down. And like you, you said, we, we get addicted to that, um, that, that kick, that serotonin. So you you kind of posed that big tech, academia, and the government threaten our intellectual freedom. Can you kind of go into that? What do you mean by that? We all sort of feel it, but we nobody's defined yeah. it. Well, I would look, I you know how I, I in the intro chapter, which again people can download for free, no strings attached. That first chapter at restoringreason.com. I thought that I would look at it, Chris, like a detective tries to solve a murder and like the intellect is the victim intellect has been murdered right i mean you spend any amount of time on social media there's evidence of that (laughs) yeah i mean how would you define intellect let's get real great because is it it just is my brain thinking is that intellect yeah that's i would call the like the rigor of the mind like what you actively do um feelings like we talked about before those are like I, i kind i try to equate it to like the dashboard on your car, like those indicator, the engine oil, the RPMs, the speedometer. Um, my car also has some like tire monitors. That's just an indication of, of real time feedback right now, automated, automatic. Hmm. It's, it's reactionary to 
the conditions of the road, how fast I'm going, the engine temperature. But those things, and they serve a great purpose, just like emotions do, right? They're feedback indications of what's going on. And there are many of them, but to allow them to rule your mind or your thought, that's chaos, right? You, there's one voice of reason. There's one person driving the car, not multiple drivers. So that's the distinction. Like intellect or that voice of reason is what's in control of your mind. And it produces, um, hopefully, uh, good responses to the environment, Emotions are reactions to the environment that we should look at as more uh, an indication panel or a dashboard. That, that, that's how I distinguish the intellect from, say, thought or from feelings and emotions. Sure. So, so now apply that to big tech academia and, and the government. And how do, how do they undermine good intellect? They do that um, quite simple. Big government. The government is probably the most effective at this, right? It's we see time and time again that the appeal is to uh, fear or anger, uh, fear this uh, recession, fear this investment, fear this virus, fear this terrorist, fear this country, fear this um, political party, fear whatever. It, it, and it, those may be legitimate or not, it, you know, but we're often not presented with premises and conclusion that would uh, conform to reason. We're just given um, sensationalistic uh, appeal to emotion. This has been the number one weapon of politicians and government for for ages. Or anger, right? Someone, uh, some group has taken something from your group or this group or whatever, and they want to identify you that way. And once you become part of a collective, right? Whatever, like based on your religious practices or political affiliation, gender, color, whatever, that they want to keep you from being an individual. Individuals have intellect. Collectives have like this group think of conformity. And that's one of the quickest ways to um, downplay or deregulate your intellect. If only we had any examples over the last couple of years to go off of. I don't know. Maybe we'll get one in the future. (laughs) If if (laughs) only. If only. only. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, And then uh, academia, I mean, big tech we've talked about, but academia too, I would imagine if it's, it's incredibly powerful to sit in front of a room of people and shape their minds. Yeah. The um, it's, it, it's, it's astounding right now. Like I now bearing in mind all the stuff that's happened recently, but uh, in the last two years, but we can go back much further, but I would go back like 10 years. It's every year for the last 10 years, some big, large corporation, uh, let's say for our example, we'll say pharmaceutical corporation, but you, you could say like weapons manufacturers, whatever, but let's say um, pharmaceutical companies, Uh, And every year for the last 10 years, one of them or many of them get hit with some giant lawsuit that they have to pay out millions, if not billions, and for for some crime, some scientific crime where they've either um, hidden evidence, uh, bribed scientists or uh, published incorrect studies, something, right? They've done something. Now, we'd expect government because they're supposed to enforce this. But no one goes to jail. They pay a fine. No one is found guilty. Nothing happens. Uh, who's supposed to report on this? <laughs> media, legacy media. 
But the, most of their funds and sponsoring and advertisement also comes from either big corp, like pharmaceutical, or government, right? And then academia. Well, surely those uh, scientists and all these specialists and experts would be able to tell us that this is faulty. But they get shut down and censored by big tech. And legacy media won't. So they all kind of work in collusion like accomplices, right? And it, it becomes, for someone like you or myself to just to have a, a pleasant discussion about this or want a, uh, an honest investigation uh, discussion, look into this is very difficult because we get shut down at almost every corner. These five institutions, in my opinion, are the, like I said, I looked at this like, a, like Sherlock Holmes or a detective. We walk in the room, we see intellect's been murdered. I want to know, okay, who has means, motive, and opportunity? And I would, this should be plain and clear to see for anyone that those five institutions have the greatest. I watched greatest the big. I watched the Big Short again yesterday. I love that oh, movie. Um, yeah. Michael Lewis has a great podcast too that I listen to. But uh, you know, the Big Short is about the 2008 housing crisis. Nobody went to jail. Nothing changed. The, no. the media was in on it. You know, everybody yeah. was kind of in for the fix. And I think it's a great movie to illustrate exactly what you just said. You know, because yeah. we, we've got some 10 years apart from it, you know, so we, we can all kind of look back and go, oh, yeah, that was crazy um, 15 years ago. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's hard to know. And this this kind of leads to knowing what's true and what's accurate. Yeah. You know, you look at Ukraine, for instance, and they're they're now are like there was the comfort of the war on terror where, you know, we are just the good guys and they're the bad guys. Uh, And I'm just not going to listen to any of the Abu Ghraib stuff. I'm just going to live over here and and be a patriot. You know, but with Ukraine, we really have no vested interest. And you look at the Ukrainians and I mean, I'm I'm definitely on the pro-Ukrainian side. I think they've been aggressed against. But I also hear my friends kind of repeat some of the Russian stuff. And did you see what this Ukrainian soldier did? And, you know, the morality of it gets so, you know, uh, difficult to suss out. And I think people have kind of COVID fatigue and they brought that to the Ukrainian discussion and they just don't know what to think about it. They don't know what's accurate. So, you know, how do you make a commitment to finding out what's accurate without losing your mind and spending hours just researching one fact? I would say the first thing is we have to stop falling into this this broad brush uh, trap where we look at everything based on, like I was just saying, um, groups. So when we look at like, um, oh, Ukraine and Russia, like there's nothing inherently good or evil about a country. However, there is about some individuals, criminals, right? And that's what we've seen this all throughout, like, um, it, it, man, things have changed so much in the world today in, uh, in big part because of media. Imagine a crime happens now, not just like a country attacks another country. But someone's found dead in the street. The first thing that the media asks isn't who is the criminal and who is the victim. What they do ask is what is the gender, color, sexual orientation, religious affiliation, political association of the the aggressor or of the victim. And then uh, it gets spread out. Anyone who is also affiliated with those is also a sort of villain and everyone else is a sort of victim oh well the the victim was uh this 
political affiliation, religion. So everyone of that religious affiliation is also oppressed. And what we fall into the trap of is, I mean, I've, I just came back yesterday from Czech Republic and it was interesting to hear their opinions about this. And I think they have a lot less media. So maybe that's why they had a better point of view or more. <laughs> yeah. What did you find? What did you is find? It, they shared a lot of my, my opinions and that was there are criminal elements in both the Russian government and the Ukrainian government, there is no really good side here. Um, and people should be, at least they are anyway, um, the people I spoke to, right? Because these are individuals. Again, I also don't want to fall into that trap and say everyone in Czech Republic thinks this. No, the ones I spoke to did. I spoke to individuals. I did not speak to the entire nation. Um, and one of the things I liked hearing was that... Um, there are criminal elements on both sides, but it is very peculiar that the media presents it one-sided. That 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 to me gives gives raise to like I need to think about this. Something's peculiar. I mean, I know like if you Chris, if you lied to me regularly, like nine out of ten things you told me was a lie, I'd be a fool to believe uh, the eleventh thing without some kind of question. And now what we hear from BBC, CNN, Sky News, even Fox News, like the token Republic, MS, it doesn't matter. They've been, they've lied so many times. They, they really never retract their lies. They're, they've, you know, Project Veritas has been doing a great job exposing a lot of them. Like, so when they have a lot to say and it's unanimous and uh, they censor other points of view, I'm not saying that it's all, a hoax or a lie, but it does give pause for reevaluation that we have to really, to me, censorship is the admission that you can't compete with reason, right? If you can't form your own arguments, you, you don't have good premises, a deductively valid conclusion, and it's just uh, conviction bias or appeal to emotion, and you can't compete with the other argument, so you just shut it down. That's an admission that you you uh, you don't have a good argument. Yeah, and I think we I think independent media will incentivize you with that opinion and never listen to them at all. So you'll listen to them, but I don't find that institution of like here's just my gut feeling and I kind of have some facts. You know that's not a good system either. Um, and I think that's sort of why people feel crazy. It's like you know alternative yeah. alternative press doesn't have the same level of fact checking or you know institutional resources to go out and do things not as it's getting better but yeah i think that's sort of how it's 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 difficult to kind of break it down because i know like watching cnn i'm not going to get the right information i just i'm not going to get the whole picture they've made a decision the you know chuck todd's wearing a ukrainian flag pin well you've made a you've chosen a side uh, so yeah. I know your point of view is coming from one definite, you know, and that's where I've kind of picked like war crimes are bad. That's my principle. Yeah. Yeah. And so anybody that's committing a war crime, I'm against them. I'm against Vladimir Putin. I'm against at the Avos Battalion. I'm against anybody that is committing a war crime because those yeah. are bad. Anybody that is, you know, taking people's stuff, hitting them, hurting them, exactly. defrauding them. These are bad things. And I'm against you. Right. This is great because what you're doing is uh, it's getting closer to starting. And this is something we should all try and practice is start at first principles. 
we we have jumped into realms and that's part of the information overload we're getting thrown all this information inform- sophisticated complicated information at us right deep economic crimes and god knows what else is going on and expected to make sense of it it's ridiculous we most people can't even make sense of their own personal life and then they're already forming opinions about this and to, the, one of the best places to start is to begin with, I, th- I think, it's something I've been doing, is to regularly engage in healthy um, conflict, healthy conflict, like a healthy debates uh, with friends and family, just healthy conflict. Because conflict clarifies. It clarifies your own arguments. Um, it clarifies your errors and reason, your own personal logical inconsistencies. And don't be afraid to be wrong. And it, this is the best way forward. And, and stay small. Like we're, we're taking in all these massive geopolitical issues as if one, we can do something about it. Two, that we could even stand a chance of completely comprehending it. The best is to start with your community. I see more and more of uh, some people close to me that what they've, I really admire what they're doing. They're, they're starting to run for like local city councils, right? That I can't do anything about the whole world. But maybe I could start my community with my neighbors, my friends, my family, the people I, that I actually know, not the people presented to me, um, perhaps with and almost always with some bias on the social media or legacy media like uh, CNN and big channels. That's a huge thing that I've been talking about lately. Like you, you could be as mad at Barack Obama and Trump and Joe Biden as you want to be like you can you can sit yeah. and watch the two minutes hate on CNN all you want. And you can, you know, load up on weapons and say we're going to overthrow the government because this is all bad. But, like, have you gone to a city council meeting? <laughs> because, the, yeah. you know, if you talk to any city councilor, they, they see the same four people that show up to every city council meeting and no <laughs> one new ever shows up. And so maybe yeah. Republican democracy is not over yet because we haven't participated. Um, let's talk about rhetoric because part of the, the issue that we're talking about, it sounds like, uh, rhetoric is the problem here, right? Like too much rhetoric. There's no, no civic action. There's nobody showing up to volunteer at the nonprofit. Civil society is eroding and, uh, because everybody's just online talking to each other. So why are you out there promoting rhetoric when that's the problem? Well, I don't think uh, rhetoric to me is, um, it, rhetoric, I wouldn't call rhetoric the problem. I call empty rhetoric a problem or rhetoric without the first two because the trivium goes in a particular order. It goes first grammar, then logic, then rhetoric, or first knowledge, then understanding, then wisdom. You don't just begin with rhetoric, right? Unless, uh, of course, you have an agenda, uh, um, perhaps nefarious one. But I don't think rhetoric is really a bad word, no more than Television is not a bad thing. It depends on what is being broadcast on there, right? It's just a a medium. Uh, Like a hammer is not a bad thing. You can build a house with a hammer or you could smash the windows out of a church with a hammer, right? It it itself is not a bad thing. So who rhetoric like a tool, whether it's good or bad, it depends on who's using it, right? Rhetoric, when you become really skilled at it, it's effective at – and that's what rhetoric's concerned with, effectiveness, hmm. right? Um, it is, and what we have now, I would say in social media is the best example of this. People have a lot of knowledge. They haven't bothered to verify if it's correct or incorrect. 
because to them it doesn't matter, right? It appeals to emotion, so they have knowledge, the first liberal art, correct or incorrect. And then they skip over logic or reasoning. They've replaced it with emotion, so this chain has been short-circuited. It's like they go directly from grammar or knowledge and information directly to, I'm going to speak about this knowledge I have. I'm not going to evaluate it. I, I think it's true based on my feelings, not based on whether I can validate it with deductive or inductive reasoning. Right. And so in those hands, rhetoric is very, very, very dangerous. But in the hands of someone who is good, compassionate, cares, and wants to change the world for the better, productive, um, and I would say genuinely progressive, unlike what I hear the word progressive, sometimes I cringe a bit, but then rhetoric is a, a very powerful and good thing. But in the hands of someone who has malicious intent, rhetoric is horrible. And it's what um, many dictators have used very effectively for years. Yeah, because they've got you emotional and fearful and then you're easy to control. Yeah. Uh, so you talk about preeminence in the book. What does it mean to achieve that? You know, how, how can readers achieve it if they read your book? Like what's, because you've got a very systematic approach here. So what's, the, what's the, the top end of what you can achieve? <laughs> so if it, preeminence, like, yeah, I th we've all probably heard this word, but it wasn't until my, one of my business coaches, Sean Dill, he's amazing, man. When he started talking about it, it that's when it re really resonated with me. Basically what preeminence means is uh, if you're preeminent, like Krangle, he is a preeminent podcaster, like you're the trusted authority. You would become in the podcast realm. You're the person I go to. That's Many are saying this. It's very true. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would mean you've achieved preeminence, you know? And um, that's what I think the, the critical thinkers, uh, we, we need more critical thinkers in our culture and our society. And if they more and more people practice the trivium in their circle of friends and their network, they will become the preeminent thinker. And if they're good people and we can trust them, then what we'll see is like, um, I, I really think culture and society will really, really step up and it's going to be a great place to live. That's, I look at everything from that perspective, like as if we're all a bunch of roommates, you know, we may not live in the same house. Like, Hey, you, Chris, you didn't do the dish, blah, blah. But if you were my roommate, I want to get along with you. And so we may not live in the same house. We, um, we may not live in the same city, maybe not in the same country, but we all live together on this planet. And I think with more critical thinkers, we would all be just much better roommates to one another. Sounds like a little bit like take the, why are you looking at the, uh, speck in somebody else's eye when you've got a splinter in your own like why I, and i've noticed this like when i'm obsessed with other people's behavior or opinions or what they did or didn't do like it's kind of lets me off the hook for kind of going through the the tools that i need to be more successful in my own life it's yeah. it's a little bit like the tiktok of the information diet you know when you're when you're looking at other people just kind of passing judgment yeah the, well they're worse so i can rank myself above them and then you you just, just kind of a recipe for disaster. Yeah. I like what you said. It's a really, cause that's what comes from know thyself. Like that's where you should start. Right. Yeah. If you're developing these skills, the first thing you want to apply them to, and probably the most difficult thing to apply them to is your own mind and your own life, your own judgments and uh, your opinions. We, unfortunately we get too attached to those. Something I've been practicing lately to help with that 
maybe it'll help your listeners, is when we talk about an idea, an opinion, that we stop using um, possessive pronouns before that. Instead, use like a, an indefinite or definite article. So instead of I would say, well, my opinion or what I think, I would say, well, here's a thought. What about this perspective? Hmm. Stop attaching ourselves because then if that perspective is attacked and you've attached a possessive, like my, here's my perspective, here's my opinion, and it gets attacked, you're much more likely to defend it irrationally rather than being open to amending it. And this is something that really always boggles my mind. This is the, like my, if there was a, like on my computer or this phone, I like there was a virus on there that interfered with its processing and you pointed it out to me, I would thank you. Like, oh, right. <laughs> I would go, great. It works better. Thank you, man. But like when it comes to our own mind, we like defend that uh, error, that virus. We're like, no, no. <laughs> like, it's it's crazy. It's like, don't you want your mind to work better? So if someone points out a contradiction in your thinking uh, or in a thought <laughs> or some errors in the reason, then why aren't we thankful to those people? I've seen this so many times in the libertarian world because people go, why do they take it so personally? And, and it's because the term libertarian has become their identity. You know, the term, I, I am a Democrat, and this is my identity, or I am against Republicans, and that's my identity, or I am a Trump supporter, and that's my identity. And so if you criticize him, you've criticized my group, then I have to attack you with the North. Yeah. Like, it's it's just, I think that's a huge problem that people make, is that they don't stay flexible, and they start to attach these weird ideology, like, ideology is not an identity, it's just a a way to think right or a system of governance it's not your personality 100 percent. it's not you that's being attacked no one's no one's beating you up it's just an idea and the, the beautiful thing is once we recognize we have the freedom to change those ideas it's great and but however we should never change those ideas like uh to conform to a collective but at the same time we shouldn't you know like the non-conformist well i'm not going to conform just so i can be like, you know, that's also an identity thing. Yeah. I heard someone say once, like, uh, oh, you nonconformists, you're all alike. I thought that was <laughs> Well, Dr. Travis Corcoran, thank you so much. Author of Restoring Reason. Get the first chapter at restoringreason.com. Where can people follow you? Shameless self-promotion time. <laughs> well, I don't really promote. I would honestly say what I hope for the world is that we all, like I said, we just restore reason to discussion. You and I had a great discussion. So my hope is that they just they just buy the book and share the book with their friends. So go to uh, www.restoringreason.com, get the first chapter for free, and uh, see if it's what you like. And then uh, maybe we'll be in touch after that if you like where the conversation goes. Thank you, Dr. Travis Corcoran, for joining me here on The Chris Spangle Show.